Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Don Bishop, and I'm your host tonight for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. My partner and co-host, Roger Maves, is away on vacation. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Jason Borger, and he'll be answering your most important questions on casting and presentation strategies for trout. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to send Jason a question, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, to the link below the description of the show that says, click here to ask Jason your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll be trying to answer as many of your questions live on the show as possible. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available on playback on our website about one hour after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast anytime. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Incorporated doing businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we will talk with Jason Borger about casting and presentation strategies for trout. The R.L. Winston Rod Company is the maker of the revolutionary Boron 2X, the first and only fly rods that are both delicate yet powerful and weigh up to one-third less than any others. Second-generation boron graphite composite allows us to build lighter, more responsive rods while maintaining outstanding fish fighting power. Go to your local fly shop and ask to cast the Boron 2X, offered in 3 through 6 weight. Then enter our Cast a Winston Sampler Contest. You could win six Winston rods. Visit www.winstonrods.com for contest details and to locate your nearest Winston dealer. Cast a Winston at the best place possible, your local specialty fly shop. Well, before we introduce Jason Borger, let me tell you about the very nice prize we have for our drawing tonight. Jason has been kind enough to provide a personalized copy of his book, Jason Borger's Nature of Fly Casting, A Modular Approach. With 16 chapters and over 250 illustrations in its 320 pages, this is a comprehensive review of the subject. It is truly a must-have on the subject of fly casting. If you have not registered for the drawing yet, you'll have a chance to win this terrific book, uh, and you'll want to register. So go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, click on the link under Jason's section, and fill out the form to register. We'll announce the winner later in the show. Jason Borger's background has to be the perfect preparation for appearing on our show. Growing up in a famous fly fishing family, Jason landed his first fly-caught trout at age two. His first published article appeared in Fly Tire magazine when he was 13 years old, and he's been involved in writing and illustrating fly fishing subjects ever since. He's contributed to a staggering array of publications in the U.S. and internationally, and he has appeared in videos and television, as well as the feature film, A River Runs Through It. He's a member of the Board of Governors of the FFF Fly Fishing Instructor Certification Program, and his book, Jason Borger's Nature of Fly Casting, a Modular Approach, is very highly regarded. 
In 2004, he joined the Flycasting Institute as education director, where he is involved with some fascinating research regarding the biomechanics of flycasting. I hope he will have time to tell us a little about that tonight. Truly a professional fly fishing educator, Jason Borger successfully combines the art and the science of fly fishing. And it's a great pleasure to have him on our show. Jason, thank you so much for taking time to join us tonight. Well, thanks for having me, Don, and uh, I guess good evening to everybody out there, or perhaps, uh, I guess, good morning, depending on where you are in the world. That's right. That's right. And we, we do have a, we're a following in some 160 foreign countries. Well, you're an extremely busy guy. I mean, that uh, introduction doesn't even begin to, to give a true reflection of it. Are there any current projects that you can tell us about? Uh, let's see. Uh, actually, I'm working on... Uh, another version of my casting book. Uh, it won't be out anytime soon. Uh, the first one took me four years to write, and the second one will probably take me at least that long. Uh, the drawings alone seem to take a year. Uh, and I've got a number of uh, pieces of artwork uh, that I've been uh, working on over the last year, developing some new styles, sort of getting away from my original pen and ink that I, I used to do and doing some more with the brush now. Ah. Uh, yeah, and... Uh, as far as video and that type of thing goes, well, I've got a script uh, in in play right now for uh, casting DVD to go along with the Nature of Fly Casting book. And if you think it's hard writing a casting book that's 320 pages long, try to turn that into a DVD. I'm so sure. hopefully I can manage to ram it into something less than eight hours and not bore <laughs> everybody in tears watching it. Uh, yeah, but once you get going on those projects, uh, they seem to take a life of their own. and just uh, You're sort of along for the ride. Well, uh, why don't you tell everybody your website? I know you've newly designed it, and it's very attractive. And then we'll uh, get into some of the questions that are uh, ready for you tonight. Sure. Actually, I've got, I've got two websites people can visit. Uh, the first is my personal website, which is just www.jasonborger, all one word, .com. And the other website is the one related to the Flycasting Institute, and that is www.flycastinginstitute, and that's all one word, .com. And the Institute website has got uh, a number of free downloads in terms of scientific abstracts, medical papers, uh, just general looks into what's going on with uh, flycasting research right now. Great, great. Well, we've got a whole bunch of questions, and uh, uh, I guess this causes me to think a little bit about the amount of time and energy that we spend trying to trick trout into taking our fly. Uh, do you think that's because they're so incredibly intelligent, or is it just that they're incredibly wary, or is it just that we're incredibly inept in interacting with nature? <laughs> well, I don't think it's because they're too intelligent. Uh, but, yeah, they're definitely wary, at least the big fish, or I should say at least the older fish. And I think that that definitely comes into play and what we're having to deal with as trout fishers. Uh, and some of our understanding of the trout may not be complete when we get to the stream or lake, and we may not necessarily have the best approach uh, or the best presentation strategy, and that can also cause us problems. I think one of the most interesting things about fly fishing in general, I don't care if it's trout fishing, saltwater, whatever it is, is that almost every single time you go out, there's some element of mystery going on. And there always seems to be something that maybe you didn't quite figure out. And I think for me that's one of the great attractions. We can study all these things. We can learn about the fish and its habitat. We can learn about casting and mending. But there's always something. There's always some little thing that may be different 
different from the last time, different from what we remember, that causes us to want to come back again and again. Sure, sure. Well, and, and tonight, uh, uh, some of our questions are, are going to ask you just exactly how fly casting and mending uh, and then the, ultimately the presentations uh, fit into this whole scheme. Uh, where do you think we should start on this? Well, we should probably start, I think, with the idea of casting and mending, and okay. then we can move to uh, actually integrating that into some presentation strategies. Sure. Uh, and I know that we've gotten quite a few questions. In fact, I'm looking through my list here right now, <laughs> and there are a lot of a lot of questions about uh, casting from the perspective of, uh, you know, how do I get the fly to the fish in the best way? How do I solve casting problems like tailing loops? How can I get my fly to land straight and so forth? And I think, really, from the perspective of casting, uh, there are a couple ways to think about this. And I like to say think about it because I think that's very important that we start there, really with the mindset towards what we're going to do. And I like to tell people, casting and mending together really are the physical skills of fly fishing. Mm -hmm. Sure, there's weighting. There are other things that we do that are physical in fly fishing, but really it's casting and mending. And uh, if you want to be consistently successful everywhere that you fish, you've got to know how to cast and mend both. Sure. Uh, so with that in mind, I want people to picture fly casting in extremely simple terms first, and then we'll talk about some of the seeming complexities of it as we go along. And from perhaps the most simple perspective, in fly casting, we flex the rod and we unflex the rod. That's it. Those are the only two things we actually do in a fly cast. By doing that, the line is moved toward the target, the fly is delivered to the target, and hopefully the fish is there waiting for it. So when you really get down to it, it's about flexing the rod and unflexing the rod. But as my father likes to say, well, there are only two places in a fly cast you can make a mistake. That's on the back cast and on the forecast. <laughs> so the, the flexing and unflexing, yeah, there's a lot that actually has to go into that to do it correctly to get the fly to go to the target in the way we want it to go there. Yeah, you can slop a cast out there, but if you're in control and you can make the fly go where you want it, when you want it to go there, now we're beginning to talk about casting really being a successful part of presentation strategy. So I think if people view casting not just as a simple part of a greater whole, but rather something that's worth studying in and to itself, I think they would definitely be more successful in their presentations. Mm -hmm. Taking the time to actually practice your casting, I think really is key to success. And yes, I know that you can use very simple techniques. For example, check nymphing. In fact, I think you had, who was it, Jeff Currier on here? Yes. A while back talking about check nymphing and how incredibly successful that is. At a short line distance, you can use a relatively long rod basically have nothing but the leader in the water and catch fish like crazy. But if you move to a different type of situation, you may have to do something dramatically different, the salt flats, for example. So approaching your presentation methodology with the sense that casting is key and mending is also going to be key, I think will help a lot of people. I mean, we could talk for probably 12 hours about casting uh, and mending as well. And it's very difficult to cure someone's casting problems over the telephone, which sure. is essentially what we're, we may be doing tonight. But if I can give people some things to do, uh, some things you can sort of take away from this conversation that are actually physical, that have some bearing on your casting, then I think we probably will have some success in helping some people make better presentations. Great. Uh, I think that one of the key words that can really help someone 
uh, particularly if you're having problems, for example, with tailing loops. If you're having problems with energy application, the fly line seems to pile up. Uh, you're not getting good tension in your fly line. One of the simplest things you can do is use the word smooth to help you teach yourself to cast better. Now, it, so it sounds kind of ridiculous. I don't mean smooth as in we're sitting on the phone and I say the word smooth, or you say it in a spelling bee, you know, smooth. That doesn't mean anything. But if you take the word and you actually apply it to your fly cast like this, you say smooth like that, and the smooth part right at the very beginning is when you get the fly line and fly rod moving, and then right at the end where you crescendo, smooth like that, is where you add extra speed to the fly rod, turn the tip of the fly rod over, and then stop the fly rod. The abrupt end of the word smooth is your stop. If you actually say that as you cast and take the time to practice it, not simply go out and start casting like crazy, relax a little bit, calm down, just get the word in your head, nice and easy, lay the line in front of you, and just cast smooth like that for your back cast, smooth like that for your forward cast. You might be amazed at how much you can actually change the dynamics of your cast simply by using a word that you can repeat to yourself and actually teach yourself to cast using that word. Well, you can almost envision how that, uh, how that word tool uh, could apply and, and uh, really be helpful. Well, I think that in, in fly casting, one of the keys is, is not only being smooth, but thinking about how you're going to apply the power. Oftentimes, we get the idea in our head that there's the target. We have all this line out. We've got to rush it. We've got to get there in a hurry. And by doing that, we'll wind up with all sorts of casting problems and presentation problems. The fly doesn't go where you want. You get a tailing loop, that type of thing. So starting with the idea of smooth, and then as you cast and as you get a feel for this idea of smooth start, smooth crescendo finish, begin to sense what the rod is telling you in your hand. And this really leads to what I call a, a tactile awareness. Mm -hmm. And you could call it a sense of feel. I think tactile awareness sounds cooler, so we'll call it that instead. Exactly. Of yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's not what you say; it's how you say it, right? Right. Yeah. Well, this idea of tactile awareness, as you cast and as you're saying this word to yourself and concentrating and relaxing, trying to make the fly rod move smoothly through the air, begin to feel what it's telling you in your hand. The fly line, the weight of the line, is pulling against the tip. That's what causes most of the rod bend as you cast, the rod load. And as you begin to cast smoothly, you'll begin to get the sensation in your hand of what the fly rod and line are telling you about what's going on out there in space. And if you can see a good cast, if you use the word smooth, the line loop is unrolling nicely in front of you, just remember what that felt like. And as you begin to actually practice, pretty soon, the word smooth can begin to fade. You don't have to say it. It just becomes something in your mind. You don't have to worry about trying to consciously feel the sensation of the cast. Pretty soon you will just begin to feel it. And the key there is now when you get out on the water, you don't have to consciously think about your cast all the time. What am I going to do in this situation? How, what's going to happen with my fly line? All you have to do is recall that sensation in your hand, what the fly and rhyme or the rod and line are telling you when they were behaving correctly. You mm -hmm. recall that on the water, and now you're casting. And you're casting in a real situation when casting really counts. And I, I think it's reasonable to expect that you can apply those principles to 
different circumstances, including wind and, and things that are affecting your casting. Absolutely. Uh, in wind, oftentimes the temptation is to power the fly rod really hard. Give it all the energy you can. The problem is, when doing that, oftentimes the energy gets applied in the wrong place. Uh, it tends to get applied very early in the casting stroke. Uh, sometimes we'll refer to this as punching the rod or kicking the rod, things like that, where you start out with a very, very hard stroke trying to throw the fly line into the wind rather than trying to use the rod to help you cast the line into the wind. And if you can be smooth about it, you can cast amazing distances into the wind or if there's no wind at all, just reach out farther, simply by easing off a little bit, allowing the fly line to unroll fully behind you before you make your forward cast. And by fully behind you, I don't mean until it's straight and actually falling onto the ground, right. but allowing the line to have tension behind you so that you have something to pull against. Nice, smooth pull forward, stop the fly rod, allow it to do its thing, and you'd be absolutely amazed at how far you can cast if you don't try to overpower it. So the one message we want to come away from tonight with is to remember the word smooth when we're practicing our fly casting. Well, that one word, I think, it doesn't matter what style of fly casting you use, uh, even spay casting. In fact, spay casting is, is one of perhaps the, the smoothest of the casting yes. styles. It's incredibly beautiful. Yes. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit yet tonight. Uh, being smooth, yes, absolutely. That, we, as your foundation, can do more for you than almost anything else as far as at least getting the core skills in place and getting them in a place in a way that's going to allow you to get the fly of the fish under control. And that's really the, the key to everything we're talking about tonight really is control. And if you're smooth and relaxed, you're under control. Jason, one question that just uh, has come in uh, shortly ago from uh, Tim in Moscow, Idaho. Uh, he asked if you do anything special on the stream or, or even off the stream to try to maintain the quality of your casting technique throughout the duration of a long fishing day. Do you have any secrets there? Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that I found to make a difference in uh, quality of casting technique during the day, in fact, I'll tell you a couple of things. One of them, just from a pure physiological aspect, is simply to stretch before you go out. And that, that sounds kind of odd, but in basically every other sport we would do, we'd stretch before we perhaps went golfing, played tennis, whatever, but here we are in fly casting, essentially doing a throwing sport all day long, yet very few people actually stretch. And by stretch, I don't mean you have to, to sit down with uh, you know, yoga for an hour. What I'm talking about here is basically just stretching your fingers out, your forearms, and so forth, just getting yourself to the point where your muscles are ready to go, you're not feeling tight. And that alone can actually help relax you a bit, actually before you go out and start fishing, even during the middle of the day, you start feeling tight. The other thing, that I found that makes the biggest difference for people, and this, this may sound like a, an easy way out for me, but that is practice your foundation cast more than anything else. And really when you get down to it, great casting is built on great foundations. I mean, you watch any of the world's great casters, they have foundation strokes that they can repeat a million times, and then they build everything else from that. In fact, that's more or less the basis of the modular approach in my casting book is that you start out with a foundation cast and then you build all these other things onto it, but you always come back to that foundation. If you have a really good foundation cast, one that 
is clean physiologically, you're not straining to make the cast, you're not trying to force the cast, that type of thing can make a huge difference in your fishing day because you wind up not getting tired at all, even if you're out there for 12 hours, simply because your casting is relaxed, it's controlled, you can do the same cast over and over again using the same muscles, and you can be very accurate and precise all day long. Sure, sure. That's that muscle memory that we hear about. Well, let's take a, a brief uh, break here for an announcement from one of our sponsors, and when we return, uh, we'll be talking with uh, Jason Borger further about his casting techniques as part of our casting and presentation strategies for trout. This portion of our show is brought to you by Fly Fusion, Canada's premier fly fishing magazine. This outstanding publication covers a wide range of subjects for fly anglers and tires in Canada and the U.S. Visit their website at www.flyfusionmag.com. That's F-L-Y-F-U-S-I-O-N-M-A-G.com. You'll like what you see. They'll also be presenting the Western Canada Fly Fishing Exposition in Calgary, February 2nd through 4th in 2007. This is Canada's largest fly fishing expo. Well, you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Jason Borger about casting and presentation strategies for trout. If you'd like to ask Jason a question, go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, to the link below the description of the show that says click here to ask Jason your most important question. We'll receive your questions promptly, and we'll be answering as many as possible. Okay, Jason, uh, more on the casting component of our uh, strategy uh, for tonight. Um, did you have a, uh, a take on some of the questions that you'd like to go from there? If not, I can, sure. I can bring up some others. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'm just looking over our sheet right now. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a number of questions here that really revolve around control of the fly rod and, and fly line uh, when trying for maximum distance uh, and when trying... Uh, to cast into the wind and so forth. I know we've already touched a bit on that, uh, but I would also, I think, answer a couple of questions specifically. Let's take a look. Here's one. Talking about uh, aerializing a lot of line for longer casts, and do I drift the rod at the end of the back cast, raise my hand, do both, or what do I do? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it depends somewhat on the casting technique literally at hand at the time. I like to use basically every casting style that I can depending on the situation. And that may include casting an elliptical style, which would be a sidearm style back cast, an overhead style forward cast, in which case I might be uh, utilizing that with uh, tailing wind so that I get a long forward cast still being able to cut underneath in the rear. But oftentimes in long distance casting or casting in a situation, for example, facing a headwind where I want to have ex extra acceleration, basically making the smooth a bit longer, so it's going to be more smooth like that, what I'll do is oftentimes use a technique called layback. And layback is a relative of drifting. For those that may not know what drifting is, drifting is essentially moving the fly rod back and typically slightly up if you're casting a more overhead style, following the direction of the line as it unrolls behind you. And what this does is it sets you up for a longer forward stroke. Well, with layback, we're taking that idea, but not only is the fly rod moving a bit up and back, the tip of the fly rod is actually moving downward. So the cast is made. There goes the line loop up behind us. As the line loop's unrolling, my hand is traveling back and up a bit toward 
the line loop as the tip of the rod actually drops back. Now, you've got to realize that this is significantly different than making a big sweeping back cast where I stop the fly rod aiming the loop down toward the ground behind me. Okay, very big difference. Right. In this case, the line loop is going high and tight up behind me. My hand drops the fly rod tip downward, and as it does that, my elbow is now raised up next to my body, and when I come forward, all I have to do is make a strong downward karate chop style motion and stop the fly rod. And basically what happens is the first moments of forward moving with the fly rod, because the tip is pointing almost straight back, results in the line being pulled very, very smoothly forward, removes slack in the system, and then very near the end of the stroke where I'm making the powerful karate chop part of the smooth down and forward, right there I get extreme rotation of the fly rod, which puts a very deep load in it, and when I stop the fly rod at the, beginning, at the end of the forward stroke, well, not only have I created great speed by pulling the fly rod down and forward, but I also have very deep rod load, which helps us again reach further distances and helps us do it without having to move our arms a tremendously long way. And that, I think, is very beneficial to a lot of casters, especially if you have any sort of rotator cuff issues, that type of thing, where you may have trouble moving your arms out to the sides or in multi-planes. So being able to use a little drift up and back, as well as this idea of layback, actually taking the tip of the fly rod and aiming it more down and back as the loop unrolls, and then on allowing yourself to pull from that position, pull the forward cast, like you're making a karate down and forward, like that, stomp the fly rod, and away it goes. And sure. by using that technique, uh, you can cast an entire fly line uh, without much trouble, once you've got the technique in place and you're smooth about it. Okay. Now, does your, does your book describe this in more detail for, for those of us who don't create perfect visual images? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, casting over the phone is hard, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the book definitely does. Uh, it talks about layback. It talks about drift. In fact, there's a whole chapter essentially on distance and wind casting yeah. and techniques that you can utilize to be better at doing that. Yeah. Uh, let's look here. What else have we got? Well, that, uh, that last question came from Joe over in Mesa, Arizona. I'm sure he appreciates that and uh, the accentuation that you make uh, on that, uh, the end of that uh, should be a big help. How I hope so. That? I think it's the only way we can we can do it over the phone is try to use sound effects. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll leave that up to you. All right. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, let's see. What else do we have here for questions on casting? Remember, related to mending and, and, uh, and, that, and drag on the fly and that sort of thing, too. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's talk a little bit about that uh, in terms of either preventing drag on the fly or, in some cases, if we want, actually accentuating drag on the fly. I think everybody's had that circumstance where you're not catching anything by letting the fly drift along, and all of a sudden the fly drags and the fish takes it. Or you're fishing a streamer fly and not getting any hits. You change the presentation angle, and suddenly you get fish on. So mending can be used constructively either to reduce drag or, in some cases, uh, actually increase or at least change the type of drag that we're getting. Mm -hmm. Now, mending, again, is one of these topics that we could go on about for quite some time. But there are what I call four foundation mends, and uh, some of these will seem very uh, familiar, I'm sure, to a number of the callers. Uh, but there are the aerial mends, which means that they are made 
as the line loop is unrolling in front of the caster, but before the line falls to the water surface. Uh, usually we call these either aerial or in the air mens. If the line falls to the water surface, you've got on the water mens. I like to teach the aerial mens simply because it's easier to move the line in the air. If you can move the line in the air and already have it mended before it falls, the fly land's ready to fish. And if you do it right, your slack is already on the water, which can then be remended using a secondary on the water mend to give you an extended drift. So by learning these four foundation aerial mends, you can be a long way toward having either a drag-free drift, or I should say drag-reduced drift to be more accurate perhaps, or changing the type of drag that you've actually got on a fly like a streamer. It's really very simple. And this is something we actually can do over the phone. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right. Now, a little bit of quick history here. 1975, Mel Krieger shows up at the Federation of Fly Fishers Conclave, tells people he can teach somebody how to double haul in 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Everybody says, no way, Mel. <laughs> and I was only five years old at the time, so I, you know, I wasn't privy to this conversation, but my father was certainly there. Well, what Mel did is he actually used a pantomime method for teaching the double haul, and it worked. He picked somebody out of the crowd, and 15 minutes later they were double hauling. So here's what we can do. All over the world we have, what, 160-some countries right now, right? Yep. All right, well, I'm going to have people pantomiming a cast in 160 countries. Maybe this will be a first. So here's what I want everybody to do. Start with your hand relaxed, forearm parallel to the, to the ground or the floor, wherever it is that you're sitting or standing. Nice and relaxed. And all you're going to do is just reach up and grab the top of your ear, maybe between your thumb and forefinger. There's your back cast. All right, and then let go of your ear. And just make a downward karate chop, stop about halfway down, okay, about halfway to the floor. There's your forward cast. And then relax again. Let your forearm come down parallel to the ground. Let's do it one more time. Forearm parallel to the ground. Just reach up, grab the top of your ear, make a downward karate chop, stop about halfway, and relax. All right, that's the pantomime cast we're going to use to do these four foundation mends. That way we're all on the same page. There's no question about what we're doing. Okay, so let's do another one of these. Reach up, grab the top of your ear between your thumb and forefinger. Just make a downward karate chop, stop about halfway down. So your forearms may be 45-degree angle. And all I want you to do, if you're a right-handed caster, is take your hand and arm, reach over to the right-hand side of your body. You're going to reach out and away from your body, palm up. So when you're done making the reach, your palm is up, your hand's extended, your arm's extended away from your body. If it helps you, think about this. Make the cast, and there's a pen on the desktop right in front of you. So you're just going to reach over and grab that pen, palm up. That's all you're going to do. Make the cast, reach over, grab the pen, palm up. That's your aerial reach to the right. All right. The reach to the left, very simple. Make the cast again. Pantomime it. And this time, the pen is over on your left-hand side, about an arm's reach away. So make the cast, reach over. But this time, as you reach to pick up that pen, turn palm down. Physiologically, it's easier to do that. Okay? Just turn palm down. Now you have your aerial reach to the left. Let's do the other two. Make the cast again. This time, when you stop the rod on the forward cast, you pantomime that. Just reach your hand back and up about halfway back to your ear. Stop. Just reach right back and up, nice and slow, nice and smooth, right to that point, right there. That's your reach up, your aerial reach up. Last one is going to be the reach down. Make the cast, and this time, the pen you're looking for is on the desk right in front of you, so you're going to reach straight down and out, so your arms oh, extended just out in front of you, and the rod tip, your imaginary rod tip, is basically on the water surface. 
So let's run through the four of them very quickly. Reach right, you make the cast, palm up, grab the pen off the desktop to your right-hand side. Reach left, cast, reach over to your left-hand side, take the pen off of the desktop, palm down. Okay? Reach up, make your cast, reach about halfway back to your ear. It's as if a pen is on a shelf right in front of your eye, sort of right there in front of your eye. And then for the reach down, make the cast, and the pen is right there on the desktop, directly in front of you, put the rod tip right on the water. So now we have the four foundation aerial men's, right, left, up, and down. With those four men's, we can conquer drag in almost any situation. Great. What's going to happen is this. You know, how many times have you gotten to the river and you know, of course, that the biggest fish are always on the other side, right? <laughs> That's the way it always works, of course. Now, everybody knows that. You get to the river, you immediately have to cast to the other side because that's where the big fish are. Of course, the people that live on the other side of the river are casting to your side because that's where all the big fish are, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, well, we'll just get that out of our minds here for a second. We'll get back to that in a moment. Okay, so we're going to cast across to the fish that are on the other side. So what do we do? We wade out as far as possible into the fastest water we can possibly find and then try to somehow put that size 18 betas imitation tight against the bank and get a drag-free drift on 6X. Good luck, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get an Evan root attached to that, uh, that little size 18, and it's out of there like a shot. Yep. The problem is we cast a straight line across that current. So we're casting a line from faster current onto slower current, and we wind up in a situation where we have instantaneous drag. Of course, then what do we try to do? Strip line off the reel, try to make on-the-water mends, which, of course, are very difficult to do because the line is already on the water. So every move we make tends to move the fly, or at least doesn't allow us to easily manipulate the fly line to get the drag-free drift that we're after. It sort of becomes one of these things where we're reactive rather than proactive. So let's just forget about that for a second and put the line down ready to fish. Here's the situation. River's flowing right to left. Right? Fish is on the other side. In my case, I'm a right-handed caster, so I'm going to talk about it in that, in that manner. Left-handed casters, you're going to be reaching across your body. It's not that difficult to do. Right? River's flowing right to left. If I cast straight across, in about two seconds, my fly's got an Evan Rood. Okay, I've thrown up a rooster tail as it comes across the current, and my line has got a big downstream U-shape to it. Yep. Well, what would be the logical way to actually defeat that type of drag? Well, it would be to put a big U-shape upstream, wouldn't it? Exactly. So it's exactly the mere image of whatever the drag is doing. So here's what we're going to do using the four foundation men's, casting straight across. And here goes our cast, our nice back cast up by our ear, nice karate chop down and forward, to stop about halfway down, there goes our line loop. As the line loop is unrolling in the air, I'm going to reach the fly rod over like I'm picking the pen up off the desktop, reaching the fly rod over to my right-hand side, and now it's laying the line down at an angle from the rod tip to the target. Target straight in front of me, but all my line is now up current. So as soon as that line lands, the current will begin to move it, all I need to do is follow it down with the rod tip. Now, there is one caveat here, and that is this. You've got to shoot some fly line into the mend as you make the mend. Otherwise, wow. you actually wind up pulling the fly back toward you. Mm -hmm. So you cast a target as the line's unrolling in the air. You just let line slide out through your hand, your line hand, as you mend with the fly rod. It'll actually feel like the fly rod is sliding along the fly line if you do it correctly. You'll feel it just slide right over there. All your slack will be on the water. Your fly will be right at target. And as the current begins to move the line, you just stay ahead of it with the rod tip. I usually tell people a couple of feet. 
So I just move the rod tip a couple of feet ahead of where my body, my main body, my slack is, follow that down, raise the rod tip if I need to as the line comes toward me. If I need to strip a little line, that's okay. Watch my fly. If the fish takes, hey, all I need to do is just strip a little bit to set the hook, okay, raise the rod tip up, strip a little bit with my line hand to take the extra slack out, fish on. If the fish so doesn't take, you, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I'm just wondering, so when you do your reach cast and shoot line, then you're really not impacting your tippet and fly with that reach motion. No, you're correct? not. That's okay. correct. That'll, Otherwise, that'll, you wind up pulling the fly back toward you. Yep, that'll answer a question that just came in. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, now the same thing would apply for a reach to the left if the current was flowing left to right, for example. If the current's flowing up or down, we'll use one of the up or down reaches. If I'm going to fish down current, I'll use the aerial reach up, which was make a cast, and then reach your hand about halfway back to your ear, right up by your eye, for example, right about there, as if the pen was on a shelf, just right there by your forehead, right about at that point. Now, the fly is in the current above the fish's position. If it's dragging, so what? Who cares? Fish can't see it. It's up and away from the fish by several feet. Then all I need to do is simply drop the rod tip and feed the line right into the current at the same rate that the current is taking it away from me, or faster if I want. I can drop it down, have a big pile of slack on the current, and just let that be pulled right down to the fish's position. If I'm fishing up current, and this is where most people have trouble, up current is one of these things, especially on places where you've got a lot of weed growth or a really variegated bottom, like spring creeks. And we always talk about spring creeks being excruciatingly difficult. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we have small flies and that sort of thing. So yeah, there is definitely that difficulty level there from that perspective. But the real problem that kills us on spring creeks is what's called micro drag. Macro drag, that's the Evinrude, right? Okay, the fly coming across the current. We can see that very easily. Micro drag, however, comes when we lay a perfectly straight line, beautiful, you know, that, that laser cast straight upstream to a fish's position, nothing. Put the fly over them 100 times, start playing the fly box game where we're constantly changing flies, okay? You know, the first fly we had was actually probably the right one because if you look <laughs> out there and there are size 16 PMDs on the water and the fish are taking them, a size 16 PMD fly will probably do it, all right? But we play the fly box game because we start getting so frustrated this fish will not take anything. It'll, it might come and look, but then back down to its position again. Comes and looks, and away it goes really drives us insane. Spring Creek is very, very difficult. Well, the problem was we were probably getting micro-drag. And that may have come from having a very short, stiff leader that was not performing as you might want it to, but it definitely can come from presenting a fly with a very, very straight line cast mm -hmm. up over a fish like that. You get micro-drag, you know, 40 feet away, you may not see it at all, but the fish four inches away is going to see it. So the fly is not behaving naturally. And that's really the problem with drag. It's unnatural behavior. So one of the things that we can do is use this aerial reach down. Some people will know it as a puddle cast or pile cast. Basically what we're going to do is make the cast so the line goes out over the water, not aimed right down onto it. And then as the line loop is unrolling, simply put the rod tip right onto the water's surface. And that creates a very steep angle between the tip of the fly rod, which is at the water surface, and the fly, which is up in the air. And when the line loop unrolls, the line falls down in a series of S curves. Some of you may know this as the S-cast or slack line cast. We're not actually shaking the tip of the fly rod here. Understand that. This is a different mm -hmm. type of thing. We're making the cast and putting the rod tip right on the water. Shoot some line if you need to. Get a little bit extra slack into it as you drop the rod tip. And then when the line loop unrolls, 
the line falls at that angle and makes a series of S-curves. It's like an accordion all the way out to the fly, and that can help us uh, with these micro-drag situations, definitely. Okay. Well, we need to take another brief break, and when we come back, uh, we'll be uh, answering more of your questions about casting and presentations for trout, and we'll probably need, just in the interest of time, to start moving toward the presentation angle. Absolutely. Family Ties, that's T-Y-E-S, Family Ties is a nonprofit organization that utilizes an interest in fly fishing to enhance family relationships and youth development. Contact them for information, and you can hear an interview with Paul Hines, Family Ties co-director, in our archive from the FFF Conclave. Go to familyties.com, that's all one word, F-A-M-I-L-Y-T-Y-E-S dot com. They would welcome your involvement and support. Well, you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Jason Borger about casting and presentation strategies for trout. You can still ask Jason a question by going to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, to the link below the description of the show where it says, click here to ask your most important question. We'll be trying to answer as many of your questions as possible. Uh, Jason, I, I have a couple of folks who've asked questions regarding the most common kinds of casting mistakes that people make. And I wonder if this might be a lead-in to a brief discussion about the Fly Casting Institute. Sure. Uh, most common uh, mistakes people make when casting, uh, there are a couple of them that really tend to jump to the forefront. One is having uh, poor wrist control on the backcast and winding up either having an underpowered backcast or a backcast that is directed down and back versus up and back, which makes the fly contact the ground, water, or bushes behind you. And probably the second most common casting error that creeps in is attempting to push the fly rod forward or jerk the fly rod forward in order to try to throw the fly line out there, which uh, when we do that, results in certain things happening with the dynamics of the tip of the fly rod as it flexes and unflexes and the formation of a line loop, and oftentimes people wind up with tailing loops as a result. drives people insane because it's constantly tangling your line and leader. That's uh, our smooth acceleration, that's, right? That's our smooth. And yep. if it helps you, really think about that smooth, the very end part. Uh, yep. Bob Jacklin one time said that he felt two most important words in fly casting, or at least two of the most important, were stop and stop. Uh, and while there are certainly uh, discussions we could have about distance casting that don't involve stops, or at least don't involve stops that are obvious, for most casting, the idea of going stop, stop at the end of the casting stroke can help people overcome some of the issues of either having a weak cast or a cast that starts early jerking the fly rod versus a cast that has a nice smooth and then good stop at the very end of the stroke. And in the Fly Casting Institute, there's our segue, one of the things that we do focus on, in addition to injury prevention or, or injury rehab as well, is making certain that people have a good casting technique. And we do that by looking at, number one, if anybody has any injuries, that type of thing, and then tuning the casting technique as it needs to be to give them the best results. And physiologically, there are certain things that we as humans do and certain motions that we have that are efficient. And we try to get people to do those types of things and give them something that they can take home with them in addition to just spending four days with us, something they can take home that they can self-teach with. 
And some of the things we've talked about tonight revolve around that. But it's four days of, of fairly intensive uh, casting exercise, fishing, of course, uh, casting analysis, uh, actual physical analysis. Uh, my business partner is, a, is the head team physician at University of Montana. And uh, he does a, a full physical analysis of people to see what's going on. And we also have a rehab specialist that comes in and gives people either rehab exercises, strengthening exercises, or just ways in which uh, you can make your physiology a bit better to help you become a better fly caster. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of, we've had some questions come in uh, regarding injuries, and I myself have a bit of a rotator cuff issue, as you mentioned. Uh, one fellow talks about some friends who have problems with back pain uh, mm -hmm. during the uh, uh, course of a, of a busy casting day. Uh, does your information shed some light on these different uh, issues? Uh, probably the best person to answer that would actually be Dr. McHugh, who's my, my uh, physician partner in the Institute. But sometimes uh, what we see in terms of a casting technique related to back pain stems from scapular uh, rotation, excessive movement. So rather than your back being really stable as you cast, you tend to do a lot of rotation with your back, and that winds up opening and closing that scapular area a lot and can put a lot of stress on that. So if somebody's having a problem in their middle back, sort of between their shoulder blades, they may want to consider casting in front of a mirror. Now, obviously, you're not going to have rod and line in your hand, but actually running through your casting stroke and taking a look, is your shoulder rolling forward a lot? Are you, are you sort of hunching your back as you make your forward cast and then straightening up as you make your back cast? There may be something going on with that. And that's actually something that we saw in the 2006 clinic uh, with somebody that fished uh, 275 days a year. Like 150 of those were in New Zealand, poor guy. Uh, but he was, having, he was having back pain. And it turned out that, that what we were able to do was give him some casting exercises and uh, alter his casting style a bit so that he had much greater scapular stability. And all of a sudden, his accuracy really improved. His back pain started going away immediately. And uh, he went away from the clinic uh, off to New Zealand, hopefully with a smile on his face and some big fish on the end of his line. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's, uh, let's move on uh, into the area of presentations. Uh, I should let the audience know we had a ton of questions submitted in advance of the show, and I forwarded those on to Jason uh, before uh, we, we started. And then during the show, we're also having a, a vigorous uh, <laughs> amount uh, coming in. So undoubtedly, we'll miss some folks' questions, but uh, we're going to be trying to answer just as many and cover as much uh, material as possible. Um, how about uh, presentations? There are a lot of different angles. Uh, any particular place you want to start? Well, we've, we've talked about mending already and its application to pre some, some presentations in terms of a cross-stream and upstream and downstream, so at least we've got some of that covered. Let's see what we've got here that might be really key here. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's just start, again, like casting, let's start with a simple idea. With casting, we start with the idea that we flex and unflex the fly rod, and that propels the fly into the target, and away we go. If there's one thing that I could give people tonight in relationship to presentation, something you can take away with you as part of your mindset towards presentation, it would be this, and that is play the heron. Herons are incredible, well, not really fly fishers, but they're an incredible lesson for fly fishers. If you watch a heron, you know, it comes flapping in, big old wings, <laughs> splashes down the pool. There's no fish within 50 feet of that thing. But the heron just waits, calmly gets into position, nice and relaxed, 
nice and calm, sits there for five minutes, very patient. Okay, that's a very key word, I think, in presentation is patience. Mm -hmm. Suss out the situation before you cast, and that may mean five or ten minutes before you cast. Think about it, just like the hair, and he just sits there. Pretty soon, five minutes later, we glance over, and there he is. He's got a little fish in his mouth. Now, I don't know how many of us have caught a brown trout right at our feet, but I don't think I can remember the last time I managed that. But the herons do it every day or they die. Mm -hmm. So what does that tell us about how we should approach the fishing situation? Now, one is you're going to spook some fish when you come in most likely, but don't make a habit of it. Get yourself in position, settle down, calm down, move very gently, especially if you're in a situation where you've got really slack, smooth water. Every move you make sends out those big rolling waves. Fish can sense that. Okay, that puts them down right away. So make your moves precise. Move only when you really need to. Be nice and calm about it. Then relax. Assess the situation. Get your line pulled out. All right, get yourself ready to go first. Look at the situation where you're going to cast. How are you going to cast there? Don't false cast 50 times to get there. If it only takes two false casts to reach 30 feet, that's all you should be doing. Okay, think about your men's ahead of time. Everything should be right. And then when the time comes, you make your move, just like the heron. When the time comes, he moves swiftly and smoothly. He's got his prey. Same thing with us. We make a one good cast at the position if possible. Make it count. Make your mend. Watch the presentation flow through. If it's not successful, be calm about it. Wait a second. Maybe the fish is a little spooky. He's eh, off. Just wait a minute or two. Then put the cast back on him. So play the heron. That, I think, alone would uh, definitely help people in their presentations if they kept that mindset in place as they went out and fished for trout. Well, that's interesting. We've, uh, this is not the first time we've heard the analogy of the heron. Uh, oh, I'm sure it isn't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think that, that every, every fly fisher that gets out there and watches those birds realizes there's got to be something going on that they should be emulating because, you know, like I said, there aren't many times when you can catch brown trout right at your feet. So if those birds can do it, that should be a lesson for us as fly fishers as to how to approach the fish. Okay, well, in, in addition to the casting techniques that put the fly into play for the presentation, are there other issues that are important? Uh, questions have come in regarding color, for example. Color of the fly, color of the line or leader, uh, this kind of thing. Well, I think let, let's talk about various aspects of color, and we'll do it, we'll do it quickly. Uh, I think that if you went onto the internet, you could probably find a thousand pages for and against uh, fly lines being orange or fly lines being black or what, whatever you want position you want to take. Uh, in my own personal experience, when it comes to fly line color, it's actually more important uh, from the perspective of casting. Particularly, I found in low angle light situations. I did some casting one time over some very spooky fish in, in very clear, shallow water, and using a really bright line which had a lot of reflectivity of light. I don't mean the, just the color itself. I mean when it moved to the air, it was extraordinarily bright uh, because the sun was reflecting off it at a relatively low angle. You could actually watch the fish spook. And I don't mean the fly line landing. I mean the fly line simply being cast. Took that fly line off, put a dark olive line on, cast over the same fish, and they weren't nearly as goosey. But I'm going to tell you this. Despite those types of anecdotal evidences, Probably the single most important thing as far as fly line color goes is don't put the fly line directly over top of the fish. Yep. Limit your false casting. I don't care what color fly line you got on there. And be accurate with your casts. So if you can do those things, 
uh, I think that you'll be much farther ahead of the game than worrying too much about fly line color, although I think some places like New Zealand and so forth, uh, you would definitely be better off going down with at least natural colored fly lines, if only to make uh, some of the guides happy because um, you know, they have a lot of days on the water and they do see fish spook in all sorts of situations, including with, with bright fly lines. But again, I think it's probably more important in a majority of situations from the casting perspective of having that line flashing uh, through the fish's window as you're trying to present the fly to them, more so than on the water. Although I'm sure that, that listeners out there right now say, hey, I remember a time when I floated my orange fly line over a trout, <laughs> it was out of there. Or yeah. I remember a time when my leader was floating uh, when I was dry fly fishing, I had a greased leader and went over the fish and it spooked. I think we've all had those experiences. So I think that there's no blanket statement that can cover any of it. For me, I tend to fish with relatively muted lines. I still like to be able to see what I'm doing with the line. And I try to be as accurate as possible and limit my false casting absolutely as much as I can, keep the fly line low to the water surface and so forth. As far as color goes uh, for flies and that type of thing, you know, I have seen color make absolutely zero difference in flies. For example, something large and black and ugly <laughs> okay, rips them out. Other times, I have seen color be extraordinarily important. I fished one time on the South Platte, Colorado, and there was a midge hatch coming off, and the, the, the midge were bright green, and a really intense, actually more bright green than the real thing, fly, worked the best put on a much more muted fly after I ran out of all my bright green flies, my success went down right away. And you know, you fish someplace where you've got bright blue damsels, you put a tan damsel out there, you still catch fish, but you put the blue on, it works better. And can trout see color? Yeah, that's been scientifically shown that, that trout uh, can definitely see color. Of course, they see things a bit differently than we do. We don't have trout eyes on, so we can't go and look and perceive what they see, but at least through our fishing and those types of experiments, as well as scientific experiments in terms of the structure of the fish's eye, we have a little bit better idea about how they perceive things. And yeah, there are times I think when color can make a difference, and other times, uh, particularly in opportunistic feeding situations, where as long as it looks like something tasty, and most tasty things in trout streams are brown or black, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you're probably doing fairly well. I mean, if if somebody said I can only fish one nymph for the rest of my life, I'd probably take a pheasant tail in various sizes and go with that. It just looks good to eat. Sure. Now, uh, you talk about the impact of false casting on fish. How about the issue of shadow casting? We've had a number of questions submitted <laughs> about that, and uh, perhaps you could uh, br describe briefly to people what shadow casting is and what your opinion is in that regard. Sure. We'll, we'll talk a little about shadow casting, and then I'm, I'm going to – I see some questions here, too, about indicators, so I'll talk about those as well. Okay. Uh, yeah, shadow cast. In fact, I think public people asked, uh, is there a good time for shadow casting when it actually works? And I think probably the best answer I can give to that is when Robert Redford is watching with a camera crew. I think that's probably <laughs> the best time for shadow casting. Uh, for, those, for those listeners that, that might not be familiar with um, the, the film A River Runs Through It, uh, I did some work on that uh, right out of school, actually, uh, back in the 90s. And uh, one of the things that I did was actually perform the shadow cast for that particular scene where Norman comes home and he sees that, that his brother Paul has become an artist as he casts on this rock over the river. And the idea is he casts you know, sort of in a circular fashion around his body. And he skims the fly over the water's surface. And the shadow of the fly on the water's surface over and over is supposed to get the fish thinking that there's a hatch going on. And then when he finally does lay the fly down, 
uh, boom, he catches this enormous rainbow. Now, if you've read the book, A River Runs Through It, you realize that this scene uh, really speaks volumes about Norman's love for his brother and how he pictured his brother at that time and how he pictured his brother all those years later remembrance. I mean, you have things like candlelight flickering, uh, images disappearing into the rising vapors. It's very literary. But in the film, it, it winds up being perhaps a bit more piscatorial, if you want to say it that way. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that, yes, uh, here's Paul. He has become an artist, a magician, doing this thing that no one else can do. Uh, you know, I think we've all had the experience where we have, have cast to a fish 50 times, and on the 51st cast, it takes the fly. I know that my friend John Wilson in Arkansas will work on a brown trout, a big brown trout. And by big, I mean the kind that can eat six-pounders, that kind of brown trout. He'll work on one of those for an hour, and he'll get it on. Uh, of course, it's a, it's a one-shot run because a 25-pound brown trout is, is not going to be stopped by 6x. But nonetheless, it's a pretty amazing thing to do. Does shadow casting work? Well, you know, I think we've all had those mysterious little circumstances where something like that actually does work. Put the fly over a hole 50 times, number 51, boom, up comes the fish and takes your fly. What's the psychology? I don't know. I'm not a fish. Uh, would I say it's a technique that you should employ constantly to the, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, what do I want to say here, to detriment of all your other techniques? No. But you know what? It sure does look good from time to time. <laughs> get out there and do a little shadow casting. All right, you don't have to catch anything. People will think you're a pro right there. And your website uh, describes uh, shadow casting in yeah, some detail. Actually, if you, go, if you go to the jasonborger.com address, there is a page there that talks about uh, shadow casting, the mechanics of it, as well as the fishing scenes in the film and some of the people involved, uh, Jerry Seam over at Sage Rods and uh, John Deach at Castle Creek Productions. Uh, we were both involved with, uh, actually the three of us were involved with fishing scenes in the film, and you can read a little bit about, uh, a little bit about it there. And there's also some shadow casting stuff in my Nature of Fly Casting book uh, as well. And I should just mention before we go on to uh, strike indicator stuff, if there's anyone listening that wants a copy of Nature of Fly Casting uh, and you want it personalized, uh, I guess through probably tomorrow at this time, it's called 24 hours, email me at my website. And I'll do a $25 price for you. The book's normally $30. i will do $25 shipped in the U.S. If you're listening from outside the United States, uh, email me anyway. Uh, I'll still make you the offer, but we'll need to talk about uh, shipping costs and that type of thing. So I just want to make that offer to the Ask About Fly Fishing readers. Wow, that's terrific. All right, so 25 bucks, and I'll personalize it to you uh, and make sure that uh, it gets out of here relatively timely, depending on how many uh, orders we get. But uh, I'd like, definitely like to extend that offer to anyone that might be interested. Great, great. All right. Okay, and, and now strike indicators. Strike indicators. Oh, boy. Now, here we go. <laughs> well, floats, as you might call them, depending on your perception of strike indicators, have been around uh, in fly fishing, or at least in fishing, for a very, very long time. Uh, strike indicators are not new. I mean, you can go back and read the 19th century stuff talking about using bits of floss on the leader to help detect the strike. I mean, it's, it's not something that's come up in the last couple of decades. It's been around for a long time. Uh, but I think that the, uh, dare I even say it, the golden age of indicators is upon us. I'm sure some readers are cringing, maybe slamming the phone down right now upon hearing that. <laughs> well, indicators used properly, uh, and that can depend on the situation, can be, can be beneficial. They can be beneficial both to helping you see more takes, again, depending on the situation. Uh, they can also be help you, helpful in training you how to fish without indicators. And in some cases, I don't fish with an indicator at all. 
For example, if I'm doing uh, a Czech-style nymphing where I have essentially a straight line leader between my rod tip and the bottom, and I can actually sense the fly walking over the bottom, sometimes I'll actually fish with my eyes closed. I've done that before and definitely caught fish that way because you feel the take immediately. But indicators can definitely be useful, not just from the aspect of the bobbers, right? Okay. Yeah. Yes, indicators can be used to suspend a fly. And I like to call them fly suspension devices. It sounds good, right? Sounds better than bobbers, fly suspension <laughs> devices. Yeah, there are times, for example, fishing a midge hatch, and you've got uh, pupa that are four to six inches under the surface. That's where the fish are focusing. Uh, you can use a small tuft of yarn, for example, with a little bit of uh, floating in it, and keep your pupa held at that distance. You know, the, the yarn is literally six inches up from the fly, just holding the fly at the correct depth. Uh, I've done that same thing in lakes in Tasmania and other places where you are literally utilizing an indicator, uh, not only to tell you that a fish has grabbed your fly, but also trying to suspend a fly at a certain depth. Mm -hmm. But I think for a lot of people, indicators are even more useful, and, and we're talking more of the deep nymphing realm here. Indicators are actually more useful telling you what's going on with the drift of your fly. How fast is your fly going? Is your fly dragging? Uh, and yes, does a, does a fish potentially have it? Uh, indicators are not going to tell you 100% of your strikes, not at all. Uh, fish can grab a fly and spit it out so quickly that, that nothing will be telegraphed to you. But it can certainly let you know if your fly is more or less in the right place and moving at approximately the right speed, if it's on the bottom ticking along, if it's just dragging, whatever's going on. So indicators used wisely, depending on the situation, can be of great benefit. In other situations, no, I won't use an indicator at all. Or you use something like a greased leader. So you've got a nine-foot-long monofilament bobber is essentially what you're talking about. You take a leader, you put fly floatant on it, and you grease it down to within a foot of the fly. Again, it's a suspension device. In this case, it just happens to be monofilament. So a lot of different ways of approaching the whole indicator thing, whether you like them or not. Even if you use an indicator just as a training device, let it teach you about what does your fly feel like when it's doing certain things. I can look at the indicator and say, it's ticking bottom. I can see that. Okay, what does it feel like in my hand? All right, I know that sensation. All of a sudden, the indicator stops. Okay, well, how does that feel like in my hand? If I set the hook, I either have a weed or maybe all of a sudden the indicator goes upstream, therefore I've got a fish. So there's much more than we could, we could possibly cram into an hour show about indicators. But I do use them, and there are times when I don't use them. I just it's situational dependent. Well, let's uh, take a very short break here. When we return, Jason will be answering more of your questions about fly fishing for trout. And we're having so many questions coming in. Uh, they're wonderful questions, and I'm sure we're not going to get to them all. The Federation of Fly Fishers devotes considerable resources not only to conservation issues, but also to education. Fly casting instruction and fly tying are only part of that effort. Certification and fly casting instruction has provided a solid foundation of information to pass on to the student. Get involved in the efforts of the Federation of Fly Fishers. Join this important organization and help maintain this sport for future generations. Take a newcomer or youth fishing with you. For more information about the Federation, click on the Federation logo on our homepage or go to www.fedflyfishers.org. That's fedflyfishers.org, all one word. Okay, we're back with Jason. He's uh, responding to your questions uh, regarding presentations for trout at this point. Uh, Jason, 
where shall we go from here? Uh, we've had questions about stealth. We've got uh, uh, questions about uh, applications to different types of waters. Uh, where would you like to go? I'll tell you what. Let's, let's do stealth very quickly, and then we'll talk about some different types of water. Uh, from my perspective, uh, I like to approach, again, you know, like the heron, but I will also look at the situation and uh, utilize my knowledge of the fish and its environment to my best advantage. If I'm going into, uh, for example, a, a very shallow lake margin where there's no wind, water's like glass, I know I'm going to spook fish. I know that I'm going to have to go in absolutely as smoothly as I can, and then I have to wait it out. just have to stand there for a while until the fish begin to come back. If I am going into a situation where there's a tumbling riffle and I'm fishing in water that's maybe knee-deep, uh, the water's really churning around in there. I know from, from the fish's perspective that, number one, it's not going to be able to see out very well. It's window to the outside world, and there's a whole conversation we can have about that. But nonetheless, it's window we very jumbled. In addition, the fish isn't going to be able to hear me very well or sense me very well utilizing its, its lateral line or its sense of hearing because there's sort of a cacophony going on around it. Oftentimes, and I'm sure many listeners have experienced this, you catch fish right off the rod tip in a riffle. I mean, right there. Uh, you'd never be able to do that if you were in a foot of glassine water on a lake. They'd see you and you'd be gone. That'd be the end of it. So by utilizing our knowledge of how the fish's environment is going to affect it, uh, I'll approach differently. Sometimes I'll be very stealthy. Other times I can use the environment to my advantage and get in position quickly uh, and be much more accurate with my cast because I know I can get 15 feet away or 10 feet away from the fish and still catch them. I will give this uh, one caveat, though, to people. If you're in a, any kind of situation where you're not sure how to approach, you think, well, I don't know, this, you know, it's the fish is a little close, I can see the fish pretty well, and this is sort of a sight fishing situation, just think this way. Just think that the fish is going to be able to see you and then act accordingly. The fish might not be able to see you, depending on where you are, if you're behind a bush or whatever, but just think that the fish is going to have the ability at some point to catch a glimpse of you and then approach and make your presentation accordingly. It's really a change in mindset, and it would probably help all of your fishing all the way around. Okay, that said, let's actually go fishing and talk about where do you put your fly? I mean, you get to a small stream, you get to a huge brawling river, what do you do? Well, if there's not an obvious hatch going on, you're actually seeing trout up and rising. You know, at that point, it becomes fairly obvious as to where to put your fly, in front of the fish, right? Okay. If, if it's not that obvious and you get there, what do you do? Well, one of the things I like to tell people is look for the seams or the folded water. I'm sure that many guests that have been on the show before have probably talked about that exact same thing. You'll read it in a, in a million fly fishing books. But look for those areas of current differential or places where the fish could have hydraulic relief. Typically, I'm looking for something that's not ankle deep. I mean, we're talking something that's, that's probably mid-calf or deeper, uh, knee deep to waist deep, someplace in there. And some place where you've got slow current and fast current sort of folding together, you can actually see that when you're out there. You've got a seam. You've got food coming in from one side. You've got relatively deep water. The fish can duck into the current to escape. The fish can hold in that turbulence fairly well. Uh, it's a great place to put a fly. Uh, oftentimes, one of the positions that we forget about is actually the fronts of boulders because there's hydraulic relief up there in the front. The fish, sometimes the biggest fish, will actually park in front of a boulder like that. They've got good water depth over them. They get first shot at the food coming down. They don't have to swim very hard against that current. So when I go out to fish a river, nothing's happening. I work the seams. I work the fronts of boulders, the sides, 
that type of thing. And any place where there's really good cover, a foam line, you can see it's really dark going underneath some logs, any place like that where the fish has got cover and access to food simultaneously, that's where I go. And at the same time, we have to keep in mind that similar appearing waters aren't necessarily similar waters. That's true. On, on the surface, figurative, figuratively and literally, one could look at a riffle and say, well, it, they, they more or less look the same. But for example, a riffle on, let's just pick something, a uh, spring creek like Armstrong Spring Creek in Paradise Valley, a shallow riffle, we're talking maybe knee deep or less, has got a relatively shallow gradient on it. Uh, you go someplace like Eastern Europe and you see what looks like somewhat similar chompy water, but the gradient may be much steeper. And you may want to actually employ slightly different fishing techniques. In fact, one of the reasons that the Europeans have been, especially the Eastern Europeans, have been so incredibly successful is that they fish those types of waters all the time, and they know how to get a fly down on the bottom in front of the fish's noses. I mean, if you look at the Czechs, if you look at the Poles, the French, they all have this really exceptional control of short-line nymphing, and they do extremely well with it. Yeah. Part of the art of fly fishing. Definitely. It's, it's assessing the water type and then taking a careful look at what you've really got going on. If you've got a relatively steep gradient, you may not have a lot of plant growth. If you've got a shallow gradient, you may have a ton of plant growth. Uh, those types of cues may tip you off as to how you might want to consider approaching the situation. And riffle as uh, shallow like on Armstrong Spring Creek, rather than fishing right off my rod tip, I might consider casting a slightly longer line perhaps using an indicator and a shotgun technique where I block off 10 by 10 feet in front of me. Uh, it's a technique I actually learned from my father when I was a kid. Block off 10 by 10 feet, put 20 or 30 casts into that 10 by 10 foot block because fish could be holding anywhere in there. Yep. You know, Cast maybe 20 or 25 feet, watch the indicator very carefully, put it at a depth so that uh, you know when you're touching bottom, and uh, go for it like that. Well, how do we make our presentation to these different circumstances? How do we make our presentation in terms of direction well, the, or? The cast, the, the whole, let's, let's uh, put this all together. Let's put it all together? Yeah. Okay. So what we need to do when we get to the river first is assess what's going on. I'm going to use a river in this case uh, sure. versus a lake uh, just because I think more anglers are probably uh, having more difficulty fishing in flowing waters due to the drag situation, that type of thing. Get to the river, assess the situation, look at what kind of water type you've got. Is it a steep gradient, shallow gradient? You know, what does the river structure look like? Uh, are your riffles really shallow or are they deep enough to hold fish? Is, obviously, is there a hatch going on? If there is, yay. I mean, everybody's happy at that point, right? Because at least you know there's food organisms moving around aggressively and most likely there will be fish aggressively following them. Uh, if there is a food organism present, what kind is it? You know, what is that food organism going to be doing? If you don't know, just do what I do. Go to the fly shop when you get to your destination and say, hey, what's happening? You bet. Uh, I can look ahead of time, sure. I mean, I can look ahead of time at places I've been 20 times in my life, and I can say, I'll bet you this is going on. And I get there, I'll say, hey, if TMD's on? No, man, they're just starting. I can't believe it. The only thing you're going to catch them on are little midges right now. I mean, the PMDs, is nothing going on. It's been too cold. Whoa, you know, my box full of PMDs is suddenly not so useful. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if you've been there before. Just walk in and ask. Uh, that'll tell you right away what kind of fly you should be looking at and, and perhaps what type of water you should be fishing. If you know that a certain type of mayfly it comes off in the riffles, I'd think about nymphing the riffles. If you know that you're going to be fishing a lot of tiny midges, I might look to the slacker water near the edges, look to the flats, that type of thing. When it comes to approach, well, 
if I'm approaching in a riffle, I can probably be a bit more aggressive, although I have had times when I've stepped off, and the first step I took spooked out a big old brown trout, so you might want to take time and look before you leap. Yep. Uh, if I'm going to get into slack water, you know it's entirely possible you're going to spook fish when you get in. You may not even see them spook, but it's entirely possible you'll spook them. Get in, get into a good position. Look ahead of time where you want to go and how you want to cast. Oftentimes we think about upstream, upstream, upstream as far as our casting goes, but I may want to fish down and across because I have an easier time of putting the fly to the fish with at least reduced drag. For example, fishing the midges that we talked about in relatively shallow, smooth water. And then getting myself ready to go, taking my time to get the fly tied on, checking all the knots in my leader and so forth, making sure everything's in good shape, and then pick, pick a feeding lane if I can see a little area where I think uh, perhaps between two weed pads where there's some deeper water, it's compressing a little bit of the current, moving some food items in there, I may want to focus on that point, make my cast there. And uh, one of the things we haven't talked about is what happens if you actually do get a fish on. There you go. <laughs> well, there are a lot of tactics. Uh, one of the ones you should probably avoid is what's called the prayer position, which is, please God, let me land this fish, which means holding the fly rod up as high as you can above your head and just standing there. There are times, especially if a fish is running through weeds or running a long distance, when that may help you in terms of cleaning line off the surface so you don't wind up with your line running underneath every possible obstacle on the way. But once the fish has completed its initial run, then use your uh, fly rod more like a fencing foil. You want to uh, thrust and parry and counter. Uh, if the fish is going one direction, put your fly rod to the side. Pull from the opposite direction. Make them swim hard against the fly rod. If they turn, put the fly rod to the other side. Make them work back and forth. You might be surprised how quickly you can even land very large fish on light tippets if you're aggressive and actually go after the fight versus simply being reactive and letting the fish take the fight to you. Huh. Very interesting. Well, that's uh, uh, that got me excited uh, getting to the point where we're fighting <laughs> Thinking about fish. fish. <laughs> uh, well, let's try to respond to some of the questions that have uh, uh, been coming in. Uh, we've, okay. we've, we've taken care of a good share of the ones that were uh, presented before the show. Here's a, here's a question from Sherry in Michigan wondering about what do you think is the best way to start a youngster or a newcomer to fly fishing? Uh, in terms of uh, choosing a fly or presentation, should you be uh, thinking about going to a river or should you just go to a, pond, a, a panfish pond? Well, I'll tell you, it, it, I think it depends on the child first. And you really have to assess that honestly. I mean, some kids in fly fishing schools that I have done, 10-year-old kids have come in and they are predators. I mean, they will sit there all day long and listen to you talk and go out and fish. Other kids... That's just not their style. I mean, they want to make a few casts, catch a fish or two, go play in the mud. And you know if they want to go play in the mud, let them. I think for most kids, in fact, I'm going to not even say kids. I'm going to say for most people, uh, catching something is important. Yeah. Got to be honest with you. It doesn't matter if it's a brown trout or if it's a little bluegill. Really, I think most people just want to at least catch something. Uh, and it, I, that connection that you make, particularly in fly fishing, there's something about it. And that connection that, that this fish has come and taken your offering, I think is very special. I think it, it sets something off in our minds and our psyches that's so attractive and just it brings you in. So taking a kid someplace so they can actually catch something, not worrying too much about casting at first, that's something that certainly does come. And you do have to cast well to be able to fish well in a variety of situations, but I think for a kid just starting out, 
being able to get an Adams or a Royal Wolf or anything like that, even just a little popper out there so that a fish can come and take it, then they'll be excited about it and they'll want to actually do other aspects of fly fishing, uh, the casting, the thought process behind how, you know, how they should care for a fish if they're going to do catch and release, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, here's a question from Tom in Washington uh, regarding the choice of lines for uh, fishing and the impact of different lines on presentation or even, say, on casting style. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think that we are definitely in a golden age of fly lines. There's no question about that. Right? Technology has advanced to the point where literally uh, a manufacturer can essentially dial in a taper and, and produce a prototype fly line in an afternoon. It, it, it's come to the point where it's amazing what we can do. Floating lines, intermediate lines, sinking lines, clear lines, lines of every color imaginable, and very, very specialized tapers. Uh, I like to tell people I think the most important piece of fly casting equipment is the line. Uh, and a number of other uh, prominent fly fishers would probably agree with me. I think Dave Whitlock, in fact, at one, one point in time said, the fly line is fly fishing. Let me be paraphrasing that. But the idea that the fly line is so key to what we do, think about it for a second. In fly fishing, we cast the fly line. The lure, you know, the fly, is actually a hindrance. In other forms of fishing, for example, spinner bait casting, you're using a weight at the end of extremely fine line. In fact, the line is a hindrance. Mm -hmm. The line just gets pulled along behind. And the fly line in fly fishing allows us to do things in terms of manipulation of that line on the water that we can't do with other forms of fishing. Now, I grew up with spin bit casting, bait casting, and fly casting. I had it all. And I just think that there's something about the fly line that really sets fly fishing apart very, very distinctly. And being thoughtful about your fly line choice, I think, is important. Do I think it's so important that you should neglect everything else in your equipment choices? No, I mean, there have been endless numbers of fish caught on level lines, straight old double tapers, your general weight forward, a shooting taper. All of the traditional, quote-unquote, traditional tapers of fly lines have accounted for unbelievable amounts of fish over the centuries. So is it necessary to have the latest and greatest? Not necessarily. But with what we have in taper technology now and in, in plastics technology, we can really tune the fly line to our fishing experience. If we're nymph fishing, for example, we know we're going to spend a lot of time fishing deep with a nymph. We need to be able to see the tip of the fly line. We need the end of the fly line to float high. We want a fly line that has much of its mass more forward toward the tip. Now, we're talking about fly lines, should say a five weight, has to weigh a certain number of grains. Well, it, there is no, no dictating how those grains have to be laid out in that first 30 feet of fly line. They can be laid out in all sorts of ways. So a fly line that's designed for that very distinct purpose may be an advantage to us. and We may actually enjoy our nymph fishing more because we have a fly line that allows us to do things we couldn't do as easily with another type of line. Uh, if somebody wanted just a general fly line to go fishing with, serial double taper works great. I mean, you can spay cast that thing. Uh, certainly you can do single-handed spay cast with it, no problem at all. It's easy to mend at longer distances, although most of your mending is probably not going to be at a distance uh, where a double taper is going to be of a great benefit, but it might be. Uh, hey, you can turn it around if one end wears out. Yep. It's just, it's just a good all-around fly line. If you're doing, for example, uh, spay casting as your primary focus, and I'm not just talking two-handed rods here. I mean 
shorter one-handed rods can be used very effectively with spay cast. I use spay cast all the time when I'm trout fishing, all the time, because it, they're, they're so easy to execute in tight situations. They put the flyer you need it to go. Yeah. I like a line that's going to allow me to do that more easily, something with a, a longer front taper or a design that allows me to put the belly of the line in a, in a, in a certain position behind me, and I know when I come forward the distances I'm fishing that I'm going to get very good turnover off the water. So is, is a fly line going to make or break you in, in a fly fishing situation? In some cases, maybe if you need to get the fly down 30 feet and you only have a floating fly line, <laughs> you might be in trouble. <laughs> you know, you're out in the ocean and you want to get down to those tuna, you'd better have some, some serious heavy fly line on the end of that thing. It's going to sink like crazy. But in most situations where we're talking trout fishing, uh, pick a line that's going to give you the best all-around use to start, and then you can begin to add to your quiver as you go along. Would it be safe to say that the more familiar you are with the performance of your line, with your foundation cast on the practice field, the more success you'll experience with that casting uh, on the stream? I would say definitely. Um, really, the, the more comfortable you are with your fly casting and the more comfortable you are with your mending as well, uh, the more comfortable you're going to be on the stream. Uh, if you get out to the casting field, and I do encourage people to practice. Uh, really, I mean, it, it's a fun thing to do, and the time to be practicing is not when you're fishing. Yep. Particularly, I mean, yes, absolutely, if fishing is slow, I may myself go and practice certain techniques just because I want to work it out uh, in some difficult or different situations on a stream. That's fine. But when it's hot and heavy and the fish are going crazy and you have a chance at some good fish, you don't want to be practicing then. You already want to be ready to go. So taking even 15 minutes a couple times a week to get out to the casting field and practice uh, can, can be very helpful. And practicing your foundations can be key. And, and during that, it's not just cast, 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 cast. Make it cast cast and focus on what you're doing. Be self-critical. If something's not working right, try to figure out why or get somebody that might be able to help you. Uh, because yes, in the end, it really can make a difference. And you know what? If you're out on the stream catching fish, you're having a good time. But if you're out on the stream putting the fly where you want it to go all the time and catching the fish you really want to catch, including the big fish, you're going to have an even better time. And practicing your casting and mending is one way to help get you there. Yeah. And not everybody's going to have the three-dimensional video uh, capability that they have at the Fly Casting Institute. No, that's, yeah, we actually uh, do casting analysis at the Institute utilizing a high-speed motion capture system, similar to the kind of things you might see in, like, Lord of the Rings. Uh -huh. uh, not quite to that level. But we use a six-camera infrared system that shoots 200 frames per second, and it produces a 3D database. So uh, what we can do is actually look at casting in extreme chronological detail, about seven times faster than normal video uh, in terms of the amount of detail we can capture. And we can see it in three dimensions, rotated in real time. You can watch what your scapula is doing, what's your, how your shoulder is rotating, what's your elbow doing, what's your wrist doing, what's the fly rod doing, what's the bend of the fly rod look like at various points in the casting stroke. All of that can be viewed in three dimensions, and it's an incredible tool for understanding yeah. medical, biomechanical, and uh, just sort of the all-around what's happening with the fly rod uh, type of studies. Sure. Well, now instead of thinking of the fly rod as a foil for fighting the fish, I'm thinking in terms of more of a lightsaber like uh, Star Wars. In, in uh, fact, 
yes, you can actually skin yourself with all sorts of characters. The, the program that we use is, is the program that's used for video game and film capture. And it comes with a number of skins. So you can you show up as a dot-to-dot -dot figure as you cast in three dimensions, but you can put a skeleton onto that. You can put teddy bears on there. I mean, you can make your fly rod into a lightsaber. Yeah, you can do all this kind of crazy stuff. Sure. It affects a little spooky seeing some of the things that you can actually do with it. Uh, a little unnerving. But at, at the core of it, it's this fantastic uh, learning tool. When people see themselves in 3D during the, during the Fly Casting Institute clinic and they actually watch their bodies cast, you can see the light going on. Wow, there's, you know, there's what I was. Yes, I can see it perfectly. You know, when you say I'm doing this or this with my hand, there it is. Oh yeah, would you like to see it? You know, at 200 frames per second, we'll slow this down. You can watch it very, very carefully, and it's uh, it's fascinating for people to watch it. One last quick question before yes. we have to start uh, winding up. This is from Tony in Sydney, Australia. He wonders when you fish a dry fly, if you prefer and you alluded to this in, in part, would you prefer to have your tippet sunk or floating, and why? Well, I think it's, it's sometimes it's situational dependent. Um, there have been times when, for example, fishing a greased leader, and in which case the tippet's definitely floating. Uh, I mean, we're greasing down to within a few inches of the fly in order to suspend something like a, like a midge pupa just under the surface, uh, where that floating leader uh, can actually create a very obvious track on the surface, not just from your perspective actually seeing it, but from underneath the water. In fact, if you see it over a sandy bottom, you can see it throwing all sorts of bizarre specular highlights and that, that type of thing, shadows and whatever else. And sometimes uh, you may see fish uh, become wary of that and spook off of it. Uh, in a lot of situations, uh, I've not had any trouble floating or sinking, but if I was in a situation where I was over really spooky fish and I noticed that my leader was uh, causing some issues in the surface film, particularly if it's a small fly and I've got some coils of leader that are out nearby it. Uh, I might consider uh, rubbing a little mud on it or something like that just to take the shine off and maybe just get it underneath the surface a little bit uh, to prevent it from being quite so obvious as it tracks across, uh, across the surface film. Okay. Well, golly, Jason, you've uh, covered a lot of territory to, to tonight, and we really appreciate it. Uh, we've had so many questions submitted that we've only been able to touch on a portion of them. When we return, we'll be drawing for a personalized copy of Jason's book, so stay tuned to see if you win. Plan to see additions to our website, www.askaboutflyfishing.com, in the near future. In addition to our archives, the directories, and our global events calendar, you'll have access to even more information to enhance your enjoyment and success in fly fishing. Also a reminder, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute to give us your feedback about the show. Just go to the section on our homepage about tonight's show, click on the link, what did you think of, of this show, and leave your comments. From our global events calendar tonight, ladies, plan on attending the 11th Annual International Women Fly Fishers Festival October 19th through 22nd at Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. You'll be impressed with the guest speakers they've selected. Go to the events calendar under Massachusetts for details and contact information. You can list any fly fishing related events yourself on our events calendar. Don't forget to remind your local clubs and fly shops to list their fly fishing related happenings on the calendar. We'll be highlighting one event from the calendar on each of our shows. Well, it's now time to give away 
the personalized copy of Jason's book, Jason Borger's Nature of Flycasting, a Modular Approach. Basically, our computer program randomly selects a name from this show's registration database. So if you didn't register tonight, make sure you do so on our next show. If you're the lucky winner, we'll be contacting you in just a few days when my partner Roger is back from his vacation, and we'll get you information on how you'll receive this book. So here we go. The winner is, there we go, we have David Stockton in Ohio as the winner. Okay, and we also are drawing for a free one-year subscription to Fly Fusion magazine, which is the premier fly fishing magazine in Canada. And the winner for that is Paige Olson in Wisconsin, uh, a fellow Wisconsinite of Jason Borger. Here we go. Well. Congratulations, folks. Uh, you're going to really enjoy these uh, very nice uh, uh, publications that you're receiving. Uh, Jason, I can't tell you how much we appreciate your taking time from your busy schedule to join us tonight. And I want to thank you for, first, the nice offer for our audience for your book, and uh, second, for taking time to uh, teach us more about casting and presentation strategies for trout. I know I'm going to be keeping the heron in mind, and I'm going to remember smooth in my you know. I'll probably right. say it a little differently at times. All right. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you all tonight. Well, great. I, I really, we, we've had so many questions submitted that I hope at some point you might be able to join us again uh, so we can answer more of the, the terrific questions that have been submitted. Absolutely. I'd very much like that. Great. Well, our next broadcast will be on October 4th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. We'll be interviewing Renee Lamaris and he'll be talking about fly fishing for the largest trout in the world, the Taiman. These trout are found in Mongolia and eastern Russia, and they offer an experience you won't find anywhere else. It's going to be an eye-opening show, so don't miss it. We'd like to thank R.L. Winston Rod Company and Fly Fusion Magazine for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to check out our website, uh, the different events calendar, the directories, and please spread the word about us to your friends. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, take someone fishing with you. Take your family. Take a child. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. <laughs>